Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee, and we hope to be back there soon. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from Isaiah outlining how the words of Isaiah affected the meaning and importance of Jesus' life and ministry hundreds of years later. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 19 of our series, Long Story Short. As you may know, we're journeying through the Bible this year from Genesis all the way to Revelation. and We're in the middle of one of the major prophets, Isaiah. Now, last week, we looked at chapters 1 through 39, which described judgment, hope, and this future messianic king. God's promise to David was offered to each and every generation of David's descendants, but one by one, they all fail to be faithful. So, they don't inherit the fulfillment of the promise. And their unfaithfulness resulted in Israel's exile to Babylon, this catastrophic event that shook Israel's faith to the core. Isaiah 39 left us with very little hope for Israel or the lineage of David. But as we turn to Isaiah 40, we step into a new world of hope. Out of the gates, we hear a voice announcing, Comfort! Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Now, the vantage point of this prophetic voice is positioned after the exile, which is described here as a period of hard service that came about as a result of Israel's sins. Now that Israel has paid its dues, God announces comfort, and that a new day has dawned. Now what follows is a very famous biblical poem, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places as plains, as the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken." God is going to return to his land by crossing the great piece of wilderness that lay between Babylon and Jerusalem. His glorious presence is going to take up residence in the temple once more as it did in the days of Solomon. This is when the great promise to Abraham of blessing for all nations will come true. Not only this, but God's going to lead the Israelite exiles back to their land. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Yahweh comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. After this great announcement, our hopes are very high. We're expecting the return from exile for God to come back and dwell in the temple again and for all nations to come and participate in the glories that will follow. 
but that's not where the poem goes. Instead, it focuses on the response of the Israelites to this great announcement of hope. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It appears that the Israelites are still bitter about the exile, and that they think they've been ignored and abandoned by their God. But Isaiah reminds them that Yahweh is a God who helps the helpless, who gives strength to the powerless. Then God responds himself to their complaints, and he spends the next six chapters making his case. Now, all these poems are designed to be like a poetic courtroom, and God takes center stage in the courtroom, and he launches his case, claiming to be the creator of the world and Lord of history. Exhibit A is the fact that just as he promised through Isaiah, he's raised up the Persians and Cyrus, their king, to topple Babylon, who took them into exile. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So that was Exhibit A. Exhibit B is the exile itself. But this tragedy was not the result of God's neglect. Rather, it came about as a result of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me, so I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. So that's A and B. Exhibit C is the downfall of Babylon itself, which is the focus of chapters 46 and 47. This is a demonstration of God's justice on behalf of Israel as he brought down their former oppressor. Now, all of this evidence should have an effect on God's covenant people. Experiencing the power, grace, and providence of their God should motivate the Israelites to become God's servant who will bear witness to God's justice and mercy before all the nations. And this is what the poem in Isaiah 42 is all about. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. 
This is what God, Yahweh, says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The idea was that the exile should have chastened and purified Israel, as Isaiah spoke all the way back in chapter 1. And through this chastening, they should become a light to the nations and unleash God's justice into the world. But that's not what happened. And chapter 48 is wholly dedicated to making this point. In Isaiah 48, God accuses the post-exile Israelites of continuing their hollow allegiance and idolatry, which ultimately disqualifies them from being God's servant to the nations. Instead, God says in verse 6 that he's going to do a new thing, hidden and unknown to you. And then like a lightning bolt out of nowhere, we hear a new voice speak up in Isaiah 48 verse 16. And now sovereign Yahweh has has sent me endowed with his spirit. And we ask the question, who is this? Like we've heard of a spirit-empowered leader before in Isaiah, the messianic king from the line of David described as the shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11.1. He was endowed with God's spirit seven times over. And now it appears he's showing up on the scene after the exile. However, now the story is more complex. He doesn't just have a job to do among the nations, as Isaiah 11 described. He also has a job to do among the Israelites themselves, who are as hard-hearted as ever towards their God. Like This is the main point of Isaiah 49 through 55, which describes this new servant's mission, first to Israel and then to all the nations. Isaiah 49 describes how this individual servant of Yahweh is given the title Israel. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, Yahweh called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And then he has given Israel's job of bringing justice and good news to the nations. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Then in verse 7, we discover that this servant is despised and abhorred by the nations. This is what Yahweh says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This ambiguous little description is developed in the following chapters. The servant tells us that his message is rejected by his fellow Israelites, and he's beaten and forsaken. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And yet the servant has a message of good news in chapters 51 and 52. God is going to fulfill his great promises and bring his kingdom over all nations. But it's going to happen in a surprising way. We're told in chapter 52 that God is going to send messengers with good news. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When Yahweh returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now that sounds awesome, but how will it go down? Not how you'd expect. The poem that follows this dramatic announcement is the famous suffering servant poem of Isaiah 53. We hear about God's servant that we were introduced to in chapters 48 and 49 and how God is going to lift him up high in exaltation by allowing him to be rejected and beaten. Now this is confusing because that's not generally how kings are exalted. But the center of the poem is put in the mouth of a group called we who tell the story of the servant. They say at first, he appeared to them as this insignificant, low-life, God-forsaken, rejected by people. There was nothing about the servant that looked impressive or important. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. However, they now acknowledge that they couldn't have been more wrong. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in reality, the servant was suffering and dying on behalf of Israel's sin and unfaithfulness. It was Israel who rejected God's servant, and they led him to his death and killed him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." But just like we read in Genesis 50 about Joseph and his brothers who planned evil to destroy him, God orchestrated their evil to result in good. It was actually God's mysterious purpose that the servant would die at the hands of Israel because of their sin and on behalf of their sin. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, so his death would play a role of the sacrificial guilt offering, providing atonement for their evil. Remember reading through Leviticus? But now, thankfully, this isn't the end of the servant's story. After his rejection and death, we all of a sudden read that the servant is going to look upon descendants and live long days and see the light and be satisfied. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. 
We hear that his death was actually the opposite of failure. It was his way of bearing the sins of his people so that the guilty can be pronounced righteous before God. Guilty Israel, who did not only end up in exile for their sins, but also killed God's servant sent to them, is pronounced righteous. Not for anything they have done, but because of what the servant did on their behalf. Now maybe you're thinking, wait, am I reading the New Testament right now? No, you're reading the book of Isaiah, but now you can see why the book of Isaiah, along with the Psalms, are the most quoted Old Testament books by Jesus, as well as the other apostles who wrote the New Testament. The rest of Isaiah shows how the servant then forms a group of descendants, literally the Hebrew is seed, who will listen to his voice and follow him into God's new creation. They will face persecution in the dark days that lie ahead, but ultimately they will inherit the new Jerusalem that God has in store. The story ends with God bringing final justice and a renewed creation, where all nations are invited into the kingdom of God's servants. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The book of Isaiah is truly remarkable. The entire story of Israel and the Bible itself is summed up and projected into the future. The poetry and narratives in this book were foundational for Jesus and his understanding of his kingdom of God mission. You can see why he picked the book of Isaiah to read aloud when he finally went public with his mission in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah was included in the books of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus surveyed with his disciples after the resurrection, showing them that everything had been anticipated in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The book of Isaiah was foundational for the early followers of Jesus and helped motivate their mission to bring good news to the nation. So ultimately, Isaiah's portrait of the suffering servant king as the true victor over human evil didn't come from nowhere. It's a profound development of that strange poetic image we were introduced all the way back in Genesis 3:15 about the suffering seed of the woman who would destroy the serpent. And I, God, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This, we discover, is how God would overcome the horrific evil that has duped humanity into thinking they are God. This is how God will become the victor over the human evil that resulted from that tragic error. God would send a son of Eve to conquer evil by allowing evil to conquer him, then overcoming its power of death by his love and eternal life. There's a reason why the poem of Isaiah 53 is introduced with the phrase, 
good news. And there's also a good reason why all four stories of Jesus in the New Testament were called the good news or the gospel. It's the strangest good news you will ever hear, but also the best news. It's the story of God's defeat of evil so that you and I can be rescued from the human condition, the death we see all around us, and that which we find inside ourselves. In this story of the servant's death and resurrection, we discover the love of God that leads to true life. And it's this life death and resurrection we celebrate each week when we come to a table. This week, Michael will guide our thoughts as we remember the servant who suffered on our behalf so that we can have true life. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week. 